everybody. This is Stephanie Ruper. Thank you for tuning in to the Naked Humanity Once the Meaning of Everything podcast, where we discuss what it means to be human. Today is episode number 34, and we have on Professor Linda Woodhead, who is a specialist in the modern religious landscape and alternative spiritualities. Okay, so I just finished recording with Professor Woodhead, and we have a fantastic conversation, very enlightening. Professor Woodhead studies uh, what she, what she calls uh, what's most important to people. And so she takes a very similar approach to religion as I do, which is to say, not wanting to really think of it as a separate category, but rather she looks at it and says, hey, let's figure out what really makes people tick. Let's figure out what's going on under the surface. Let's figure out uh, how they're making meaning, how they're making sense of things, how they're connecting with other people, all that sort of stuff. And obviously religion is a very big piece of that, but in today's religious landscape, you know, there's been a huge change that has been rumbling and growing throughout the last few hundred years, of course. Uh, and nowadays we see such a plurality. We see so much diversity. We see uh, so much subjectivity. And by that, I mean so much individuality, so much change, so much you know, we saw new age stuff. We're seeing scientific stuff. We're seeing astrological stuff. We're seeing pagan stuff. We're seeing all this flowering of new ways of inhabiting the world spiritually and otherwise, uh, precisely because of the way the world has changed and globalized and technologized and all that sort of stuff. And so uh, today, Professor Woodhead and I discuss Oh, a lot of things. Uh, we discuss the spirituality of the youngest generations, you know, and, and how different it is from how it was just even a decade or two ago and how the internet is involved with that and ways in which the political, you know, evolution and technological evolution of our, of our world has, has given rise to these new forms. And we talk about rituals and symbols and, and what it all looks like and how it's taking shape and what it is about us as humans that is making it happen that way. Um, all very fascinating. And then uh, we spend a little bit of time uh, talking about my work at the end, which is uh, interesting and very cool. So uh, I'm very very happy to share all of this with you, a little bit about Linda Woodhead, a little bit about the professor. She is a British academic specializing in the religious studies and sociology of religion, as I mentioned. She's best known for her work on religious change since the 1980s and for initiating public debates about faith. She has been described by Matthew Taylor, head of the Royal Society of Arts, as one of the world's leading experts on religion. I happen to agree. Since 2006, she has been professor of sociology of religion in the Department of Politics, Philosophy, and Religion at Lancaster University in the UK. From 2007 to 2012, she was director at the AHRC, ESRC Religion and Society Program, and now she is on a research grant uh, at Stanford University in the States. So she is a total boss, a very wise and insightful guest, and I am super, super honored and excited to have her on. So without further ado, here is Professor Linda Woodhead. Hi, welcome, Linda. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me. Now, you're a researcher in the UK, but also in California currently? I am. I'm based at Lancaster University, but I've got a fellowship year at Stanford University in California this year. Lovely. Um, and 
you must be, you're heading up some sort of research project, yeah? Yeah, we've got a little team here and we're looking at the beliefs and values of um, Generation Z of, of um, 18 to 20 year, 21 year olds, you know, college age, post-millennial generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the UK and the US. Lovely. So can you tell me, tell us a little bit more about how that specific project fits into your sort of overall project and the things you've worked on previously? Yeah. Um, it's in keeping with my general interest, which is in what, what matters to people. Now, what's significant to them, um, both in their ordinary lives as they live them out, but also in their frameworks of meaning and purpose, and in how, um, of course, I'm interested as well in how their beliefs in gods and supernatural entities and spirituality and all those things are changing. The project's looking more widely at their frameworks of meaning. All those things are my long-standing interests. Mm. Yeah, you've been... You've historically, you've been in the field of religion, um, and I think maybe your uh, quest is is similar to mine in the sense that I care very deeply about what it is that makes pe- people tick, and religion ends up being a pretty, a nice lens to to look at that through. That's exactly right. Yes, I was originally trained in in, in theology at, at Cambridge. That's what I studied, hmm. and then I taught that for a little while, and then I became more interested in um, what 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 people in general believe and what kind of wisdom they have to share, and not just in the theologians. And, and also, I'm very interested in the transformation of religion, what I call a de-reformation, so the, the Protestant model. Um, shifting and changing and declining and people discovering new ways to make make meaning in their lives both with gods and without gods Mm. yeah we sort of we have this tendency in our culture to very much uh, artificially divide or bifurcate like religion and and big meaningful things and Mm. then the rest of life but that's Mm. that's totally false right and that's something that you've been able to, to demonstrate yeah, I totally agree with you. I'm not really interested if you call it religion or not religion. I'm just right. interested in what you think is meaningful, what, what you think really matters, um, what kind of reality you think you're living in in terms of those big questions. Mm. Um, and so then how has being in the study of religion sort of influenced your quest to understand what's most important to people? Um, well, um, I like listening to people. I like talking to a whole range of people. Um, I've done most of my research in Europe, America, um, in, uh, well, I started off in India, actually. My first um, work was on Hinduism uh, in the Philippines, but mainly in Christian-based cultures. Um, and um, I'm just interested in the whole variety there is within them mm. and what happens when people stop going to church uh, and where they look for alternative meanings. And uh, I think it's a time of real pluralization. There is such a range of things happening, and there are so many interesting new avenues that people are exploring. And my real interest in, in at the moment, in my, I think particularly I will focus more on this in the coming years, I've become more and more interested in how people think of supernatural beings, God, or gods. There's a turn to thinking of more gods, so towards polytheism, away from monotheism, which I find really fascinating. So I would love to do more work on that, because that's what I've seen develop over my 25-year career, from people thinking there is one 
big god up there to moving towards a more kind of formless mysticism, but now rediscovering again some of the old mythologies. And we're just speaking today when Game of Thrones has come back in its final series, haven't we? But yeah, fascination with the, with the old mythologies and the pre-Christian mythologies and, of course, with goddesses as well as gods. So that whole, those whole issues uh, fascinate me because of the change we're seeing. That's so fascinating. And with respect to that, particular change you said people um what which people are sort of you know where are we seeing in, this people in monotheistic cultures mm. um so jewish and christian uh where there's been for so many centuries a, a very clear authority structure in the religious life which has been insistent particularly well, actually, after the Reformation particularly, that um, the theosphere, as I like to call it, the world of, uh, of the gods, uh, has a supreme deity. Of course, Christians think that that's a trinity, but a supreme deity, a theism. And with the, with the decline in authority of that way of thinking, people are rediscovering and reinventing um, the way they relate to, 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 the, to the theosphere, to this, this realm of of higher meaning so that fascinates me that is fascinating i actually i had no idea that was happening because usually in in theories of religion uh people at least historically have talked about how religion became increasingly sophisticated by moving into being increasingly abstract right and it mm-hmm. sounds like people are maybe right. seeking something that's more local or sort of yeah. particular to them and that might is why yes. is that? Is that because our culture is so unhooked and globalized and all that? Oh, that's a great question. I think there's something about that. So you can see in the rise of um, the return to so heathenism um, is returning to pre-Christian Nordic and Germanic gods, um, and that's very much about discovering who we are. There's a very strong outright move, uh, element to that, of course. In Charlottesville, you can see those symbols of some of those gods because it's returning to pre-Christian, pre-Jewish. There's an anti-Semitic move in those fringes of that movement as well. But yes, it's, that's about returning to our culture, our land, our gods. And that's certainly one element. Uh, another element is just, I mean, religion has usually been about everyday helpfulness as well. So returning to gods and goddesses who are felt to have healing, um, uh, you know, real presence in your life to work with you for various issues that you're dealing with, or the return of Wicca and witchcraft with uh, practical measures in life, rather than a very distant, abstract god that you need a mediator, like a priest, to stand between you and that god. I think it's also part kind of democratizing god. Maybe that's part of the explanation as well. But um, these are early speculations, and I want to do more more work talking to people in those in those movements. But I think you're right as well. There's there's simply the aspect also that is very hard to visualize. If you say God is just above all characteristics, God is a sort of mystical oneness, it's very hard to have a relationship with that kind of God. And I do think that we like to have some, be able to visualize uh, and have relationships with gods if we believe in gods. And I think that's another element as well. Yeah. I I remember, um, during my master's degree, I took a course on world Christianity and it was really eye-opening for me to realize that there was a blue Jesus out there. Right. Um, right. sort of a, right. like Ganesh, right. Because we're right. constantly seeking that personal uh, relationship. 
But it's interesting you mentioned Ganesh because I keep seeing Ganesh statues in unexpected places, mm. in academics, windowsills and all over the place. Well, Ganesh is a very useful god. Ganesh removes obstacles. And we've got a lot of obstacles in our society at the moment. Mm. So I think people are kind of sick. People with Ganesh, is lots of people, is secret deity that they ask Ganesh for help when <laughs> something goes wrong. <laughs> well, that's, that's so interesting. So one way that I try to um, explain to people, from my perspective, how religion has sort of changed or the way that we're enacting these things mm-hmm. today is I call it a choose your own adventure story. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so I'm wondering, right, like what, what is it in your perspective from this, this modern landscape, right? What are people like mm-hmm. now? Right. Cause what are the conditions that are causing things like paganism to come yes. up? Right. And, and yes. all sorts of what you call alternative spiritualities, which is okay. a great thing. Okay. Well, one answer may be, I mean, the answer that people would give you is that these are real gods, they've always been around, and we're just rediscovering them, and they're active in the world. Um, that's not incompatible with also having a sociological explanation, which is, which is my field, which thinks about, well, what conditions are there that we're living in that make this more likely to happen? Um, even if you think the gods are real, there's a symbiotic relationship between us and our societies and the gods we, we worship. So I... See, in this research we've been doing at Stanford and, and, and in Britain as well on, on post-millennials, that there's a huge distrust in institutions. There's a feeling that we can't rely on the frameworks we used to rely on, whether that's religious institutions or universities or political state apparatus. There's a sense that these aren't, and our work careers, you know, they're not strong enough to bear the weight that we used to put on them. And therefore, young people feel the need to, there's a critical need to self-identify who they are in terms of characteristics like gender and sexuality and um, um, uh, interest groups and for some activist commitments and so on. You know, a limited number of things, but you're able, these young guys are really very, very smart at being able to say who they are. And that's tied up with belonging to small groups or groups where you can participate actively. They need to be small if they're online, but you can have a say, you know, you can have a voice and participate in them. And they're more trustworthy than the big institutions. And they allow you to participate and you have some real involvement in them. Um, uh, And I think that that affects everything and it affects religion as well. Is that making sense to you? Yeah, that's actually, I... In this podcast, I am continually coming back to questions about trust. Uh, it comes mm. up in mm. in conversations I've had with social psychologists and with people who study loneliness and people mm. who study uh, terror management and death. And it's um, something that people are often talking about as, as characteristic mm. uh, and really influencing our behavior because uh, trust appears to be uh, something that's something that we really like, something that's really stabilizing, you know, um, right. Right. I tend to, I tend to think of us as feeling, feeling very uncertain, feeling very unstable. Mm. And so we're sort of mm. seeking mm. stability. That's, a, I, I totally agree with you. I think that anxiety is, is, is part of the human condition. And I think the search for stability is stronger now than it used to be because the, the, the old ways in which we found it are breaking down. I love the definition of trust that says, 
that you trust if it's a combination of believing in the competence of someone or something and the benevolence, I mean, the good intention of them. Mm. And I think a lot of our institutions have become incompetent. They're extremely hard to work with, partly because of digitization, actually, which makes them impersonal and often very inefficient. She mm. says, having struggled with, you know, expensive forms or whatever, when you have to fill in about 50 forms now, it takes so long. You think, I'm just not going to bother to pay for this. So there's incompetence. But there's also people don't feel necessarily that there's good intention behind a lot of our institutions. They're not actually there to help support them and they don't belong to them. And so that means we have to find alternatives where we can have a safe and secure uh, uh, ground for our, our belonging and our identities. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, okay, so we're seeing, you've talked about this sort of search for to understand who you are and your identity mm. what other sorts of uh, mm. alternative spiritualities are you sort of seeing as major themes or have you studied um or before these gen z what are they gen z gen gen, gen z post-millennial same thing <laughs> before the same, right yeah um so what what else is going on what are what are some other manifestations of this of the search for stability, for securing the self, you mean? Yeah, and the modern uh, ambiguity malaise or whatever we're, it is we're ah, discussing. Right. Well, um, I, I, um, I really started my empirical career in about 2000 when we looked at the town of Kendall in Cumbria and we looked at what we took as actual small town as a research lab, if you like, and to see what was going on. And that's where we discovered how much spirituality there was and how it was growing. And it was in those days, it was very much led by women um, who'd grown disillusioned with institutions, with schools and with healthcare particularly. And they wanted to do these things in their own way more effectively. And they had a whole for educating for supporting people and, and uh, you know, private clients. And that's been a very important development. So I spent a fair bit of my career looking at that kind of spirituality, mm. which thinks of, thinks of um, the divine as energy, as chi, as flow. So we are all energy of different vibrations and things go wrong when we're not connected to the greater energy or when there's a blockage in our own energy. And so they had various manifold techniques and sort of technologies if you like for removing those blockages from you know reiki healers to various sorts of yoga to various sorts of consciousness raising and and, and so on and so forth hmm. yeah i um i really appreciate i understand that and i have also um well, I've, you know, you see it, you see it a lot and you hear the discourse yes. and there's been a return right. of astrology, which is really interesting. Would you sort of fold this into that? Yes. So that's very interesting. That's been a sign that sociologists have noticed for a long time. But although belief in um, God, in Jesus, the son of God, in the authority of the Bible and so on have been declining, belief in the soul and in angels um, in some, there's more mixed results, but sometimes it's on astrology have all been growing and they're still growing. They've been growing for the last few decades. So the big picture is we are not secular in the way that people predicted. Secularization was right. 
now. And there is a growth in the number of people who say no religion, and there's a decline in belief in God, not not huge. Um, but then there's this countervailing growth in other sorts of belief. And it's it's in that contradiction that I'm fascinated. Mm. What is it about that contradiction that is fascinating? Well, I think it shows that we can't think like we used to have a linear development from, you know, there was the traditional pre-modern, then we became modern and we became increasingly secular and rational and that's just the way it's going to go. That's not really a plausible narrative anymore. And so we're, we're trying hard to think of new frameworks and narratives and theories that help explain the much more complicated situation that our empirical surveys keep, keep and, and other sorts of empirical research keep, keep showing us. Luckily, life is more interesting than <laughs> social scientists predicted. Yeah, that's actually, I was just reading um, that as this is very tangential. I was just reading The End of History by uh, Fukuyama, in which yes. he says yes. that like, we're basically just going to like peter out into not having anything to like fight for or worry about yeah, or, or worry about anymore. And I was like, wow, well, 20 years, you know, 30 years later, we got a, we got a whole lot to worry about. <laughs> um, oh, that was spectacularly wrong in a way, wasn't it? Yeah. Spectacularly wrong. The world has remained, um, has remained quite, quite interesting. And I, um, mm. right. So what you're saying is there's, there's this sense in which, we thought the world would continue to secularize, but that doesn't seem to be how we're, I hesitate to use the language of wired, but I'll go ahead and use it. It's a little provocative, but it seems like humans were, we're just not going to let go of this whole spiritual kind of thing. Yeah. Well, if you think of spirituality broadly, as you are doing, then, um, um, there was a there was a form of secular rationalism. There are different forms, but there was a form which was very much about saying, "There's only us, guys. There's only humans. There's only us, and we have to be the centre. We are anthropocentric. We have to be the centre of everything. We have to use our wonderful brains to work everything out, figure it all out, and make better societies. The world be solved." And, um, well, it hasn't really worked out like that. And it's rather, I think, it's an impoverished view of the world to put the human at the centre of it. Hmm. And we're having a real pushback against that, thank goodness, uh, which is comes under the label of the post-human very often. And people say, actually, mm, maybe the planet has got an importance in its own right. And maybe we can't just use it for our human good. Maybe it's going to bite back if we do that. And maybe animals are really, really important and have much more in common with us than we thought. And maybe there are other beings that every culture and the majority of people in all times have said that they have some contact with. Um, and maybe some of this is true and we need to decenter ourselves again. Mm. Well, we were also talking about identity and that seems very anthropocentric. Can these two things be true at the same time? Well, yes, because your identity doesn't have to rest purely on you as an individual. Mm -hmm. the, the process of forming who one is is about forming relationships with humans, animals, and other beings. And that can give a very strong identity to people and, and, you know, and, and groups who share those beliefs. That's fascinating. But there, we also know that it isn't necessarily the case that the alternative spiritualities that people 
develop will end up in that way? What What is it that is sort of prompting people to find spiritualities that are relational in this sense or non-anthropocentric? Oh, I, I think really it's, I think we saw a sort of extreme of finding, trying to find meaning in me, in the individual. And that came to a peak maybe in the um, late 80s, early 90s, mm. in some kind of new age movement, which were very much about going within, finding the God within, you know, the individual standing up against convention and every, all the narratives that were being put on them um, and discovering the real me. And now that's declined very rapidly. New Age is a kind of insult now in alternative spirituality circles because it was seen as going too far in that direction. And like I say, what's surprising about the research we've done with the 18 to 21-year-olds is that they, yes, they have an identity quest, but they do it in relation. They do it in relation to other people who, of course, they can now find online very easily. It's much easier to find your people, the group you identify with, the group you feel comfortable with, and that helps you discover who you are by discovering other people who you feel, oh, yeah. So the self is something, I think, in this new quest, which is both, you both discover it and you choose it. Hmm. And it's, you know, it's a discovery and a choice. It's not just a choice. I can be whatever I want to be. You also discover it and you discover it in relation to your history and the people you feel comfortable with and your body and the, you know, it's, it's, it's both. And it's, it's a, it's a, it's a collective quest as well. I like that a lot. So uh, the internet is, is really important, uh, mm. obviously. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Is is that sort of is that like very at the foreground? Are you seeing this sort of impacting every level of how people are doing this? Um, yes and no. Um, I think that the developments, all the cultural developments I'm talking about, they've been in train for decades, centuries. Things don't happen very quickly. If you look at value change and so on, you can see it happens very incrementally, generation by generation. There aren't these huge shifts that people sometimes imagine. Um, and the internet is just part of a wider trend in a way. It was set up in a way by various guys here in Silicon Valley because they had certain cultural values that they inherited from the counterculture, et cetera, et cetera. So the internet's a human product with a social history. But so I wouldn't overestimate. Some people think it's invented a whole new cultural era. I don't think, that, I think that's a massive exaggeration. But what it does do is it gives you scope or scale that you never had before. So you can, if you are even in a small town in the middle of nowhere in some country, you can still find people that you want to identify with. And that's a really, really new and exciting and unprecedented um, element in social belonging. Mm. Yeah, I actually yesterday um, spoke with a woman who specializes in loneliness, and she talked about this distinction that's only just now being explored because the technology is so new between the community and, you know, the community into which you were born and the community that you seek out or that you, mm. you know, or based on location mm. and based on interest. And there are qualitative differences between uh, the kind of community that is, say, family and the kind of community that is because you like the same sports or wow. gods. Yes. Yes. Well, I wouldn't say there's qualitative differences. I would say that they, they are becoming like each other. Mm. So I think we now, you know, the young people have a certain image of what they want in a, in a, in a, in a small group. 
which is a bit like a family in that you are taking, you, know, you are recognized, you are seen for who you are. People accept you. You feel comfortable with people. You grow together. It's a shared journey. That's what a family ought to be. Well, families aren't always like that. So if their family isn't like that, they now are able to find other families. But, but you see, we've got a big corpus of their spoken language and their online language. They use words like fam and sib family and sibling, of their of any of these groups. So the family becomes more like the online groups and the online groups become more like a family. And, and they just don't draw a stark distinction between online and offline. It's all seamless. So they use the online to keep in touch with their, with their, with their groups and yet they still value, one of our surprising findings is they value face-to-face -face way above the online. It's still the gold standard for relating, but they see the online as absolutely essential to maintaining those relationships and to finding and discovering the people who are like you. So they don't, they wouldn't say, you know, if you think back to my generation, we wouldn't say, well, we had a phone life and an off phone life. You just had your friends and you connected from phone when you were at school. So for them, I don't, they don't talk about the on and the offline, the separate in the way that older generations might think of them, I think. Mm. Um Right. And there is this sense, you know, we already once discussed how we sort of predicted a trend would continue forever. And there was this sense where everybody was terrified that this trend of becoming increasingly digital would continue forever and we would lose human interaction. Right. Again, right. humanity is demonstrating to us, you know, the new generations are demonstrating that we can't just extrapolate like that, you know. It, it's Exactly. That's a good example. Yeah. Yeah, that's humans are clever and subversive, and they use these things as tools for what they really want. They don't go down the route that social scientists predict for them. <laughs> mm. um, that's that's really that's so fascinating and very resonant with my personal experience. Right, I, I stay connected with my family, family through the internet, mm. and I also have a family I created here who I call family. Right, so oh, uh, you do. I, How yeah. Old are you, if I may, if I may ask you, uh, I'm very young. I'm 30. You are okay. So you're a uh, you're a uh, mm. early millennial. Uh, yeah, early mid millennial. But um, yeah, yeah. I also uh, am doing a PhD at a university where many like I, I'm not in the stage of 30 year old life that I think many people often are, right. I'm still, I live in a dorm at a university. And so. Oh, interesting. Yes. That might make a difference, but yes, I do have like a fam here. <laughs> um, right. right. And, and it's, and it's been actually, it's been, it's been really, uh, been really significant, you know, this. And you've made that grouping since you arrived there. So that's a. Yeah. You're, you're physically together, but you also keep in touch messaging and whatever I, I, I imagine of yeah. course yeah of course right right and if one of you goes away then that makes it possible to make a connection what I'm what we are what we're seeing in our study is that people have several you know people have several if you like petals if they're a flower of their identity and several groups that relate to that and so that that's very uh, serviceable because when you make a big transition in life like when you leave the university um, you can't maintain all of those groups, but some will continue and then you'll make a new one. It's not as if you're putting all your eggs in one basket. If, 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 you, know, you have several fans that you can rely on and they will change a bit. There's flexibility there. They, that, that can change a bit as well as without you losing everything as you move through life. So yeah. it's, a, it's a very powerful way of being, I think. And this is 
this is maybe, this is pretty unique, right? Um, in terms of how humans tend to might have many, many thousands of years ago organized, right? I mean, there was just, uh, mm. you were right. limited by the quantity of people you could interact with. Um, right. And so like, um, I also recently were in some, was in some conversations about narratives and sharing narratives. And nowadays, we don't all share necessarily the same narrative with the people that we're around or construct our lives with the same narratives. We have these, as you said, these pedals, um, mm. creating these very distinct, uh, ways of making meaning, right. Mm. Um, mm. Like little unique islands or people talk about how your phone mm. is like a digital signature because nobody has like the same apps that you have. Right. Yes, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Right. right. Yeah. And no one sees the same, um, the same flow of things in your feed on whatever social media platform you're using or whatever. It's unique to you that you have those petals going through. Right. right. And, and yeah. the, was, the, the ways in which we sort of construct our identities, I think I've, I think of as very analogous to that. Um, mm. as we sort so, of for, so for religion, this means that those who want to quest have got many more possibilities and they can find like-minded people and they can experiment together and do so without having to do it under the old umbrellas of religious authorities that they used to have. And I think that's a very big and interesting shift. And then once they found their people, they might well meet with them annually for a meeting or conference or festival or whatever. Um, and that might become important and what might not, but Mm -hmm. There's that possibility now more easily. There always was. I don't think we should exaggerate. You know, since we've been mobile, there's always been that possibility and people found their people, but they found it through print media and phones and, and meeting up at festivals of like-minded people. It's just, it's just quicker and easier, I guess, now. It's not quali- I wouldn't say it's, 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 it's quantitatively different, but it's qualitatively different. Mm. Um, so we've been talking, we've been using language of opportunity, right. And talking about sort of the nice connections and benefits that can, that can come from this sort of thing, but are there drawbacks, right? Do people fall through the cracks? Um, is there anything stressful about this journey? Very much so, very much so. And there's some, it's it's a bit ambiguous, but there's some evidence that suggests that, that, uh, people on campuses have fewer friends that they, that they can really rely on. Mm. than would have been the case for earlier generations. And, um, uh, I mean, belonging to older societies where you just know who you are because of because that's who you are. You know, you're the son or daughter of X and you're male or female and your your job is going to be the same as your father or mother. And, um, and that community is going to be there for you always. And that community is going to look after you. And that community is going to nurture you and bury you and, and remember you. Um, that's a very powerful thing. That's how we've evolved as, for so long as such a successful species. So losing that kind of security has got incredible costs to it. And we're in a much more fragile situation in, in, in modern societies. Mm. These are these are stop gaps. I'm not I'm not um, I'm not a great believer in progress. I think in lots of ways we're just trying to get back to some of what we had and have lost. Mm. And so, right. So the natural next question I would usually ask somebody is, so what? So what can be done about it? But it is sort of precisely what's happening that can be done about it, right? 
Like you're... Yeah, so I think people are taking it into their own hands. They don't any longer trust other agencies or institutions to look after them. The contract's been broken. Mm. We don't necessarily trust our, politi- our politicians. We don't trust um, um, our, certainly don't trust our employers anymore. You know, a career was a contract for life with your employer and you'd work for them and they'd look after you. Um, we don't, can't even trust our marriages um, to last forever in the same way. And so people are thrown back on their own resources and they have to find people in smaller groups that they do trust and a plurality of them so there's others to fall back on. But it's not a, there's no guarantees. That stability is hard won and it's not... Um, it's not the same sort of stability. I grew up in a very old-fashioned village in the middle of nowhere in England, you know, in the very rural. Yeah. Well, that had a kind of stability and security that no one has these days, I think. That's gone. And it had drawbacks, but it had an awful lot to commend it as well. Right, and we can't even, I can't even, I can't even fathom, I can't even fathom what that would be like, you know, which is fascinating. It's great because you don't have any choices. <laughs> <laughs> which is great and awful but you you are you're you're just church of england because that's what you're born that's the only church you don't know anything else you are whatever class you're born into your, your gender is going to be important you're going to get married like your parents did and you know that's your community that's who you've got to make your way with and that's very very secure and stable of course for some people it was stultifying if they thought they wanted to make other choices so there's no perfect kind of society, but um, I really don't think in terms of progress. I think we win some things and we lose some things. And I don't see a lot of where we are now as progress over the last few decades. That's interesting. You win some things, you lose some things. Um, okay, so I we've talked about this, uh, the the humanness of how people are connecting or always consistently wanting to be connecting. And I think something that we also carry forward and I think you've talked Mm. about this a little bit is we carry uh, rituals with us Mm. and we often think about Mm. religion as the house Mm. of rituals right but right right but we've seen a sort of a multiplying or a new set Mm. of creations about right what what's happening in that sort of space we have you're so right we've seen a re-ritualization of life as well as a re-deification, if you like. So, um, and I call it the re-ritualization of life in some of the things I've written. We thought rituals were, you know, boring old repetitive things that modern people would get rid of. But actually, they are forms of stabilizing your life by uh, focusing, they're like a focusing lens um, uh, on what really matters. And the things that you really matter, you want to get into your whole, into your body and your life. So you do them repeatedly, and every time, it stabilizes you in those in those connections and values and things that really matter to you. Mm. And you're quite right. I love your theme of instability. At a time of instability, they become more important than ever. But we don't just take them over anymore. Yes, some groups are rediscovering the old ones. Um, but we also reinvent them and we make ones for ourselves and people are being very inventive about rituals. So, for example, um, in Britain, where I've looked at much more, people have reinvented the way we do death rituals almost completely. The church mm-hmm. has lost its monopoly and people do it for themselves and in all sorts of varied ways and ways that they are going to find meaningful. Using stuff from, from old sources and doing it in creative, imaginative ways of their own. 
That's interesting. Yes, I actually, I recently had a family member pass and we had people get together and like read stories, right? And that's just was far different from 10 years ago when we were all in a church, um, which was, which was very interesting. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I appreciate that. I again, this is sort of choose, choose your own um, adventure at, at ritualization. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. So the, the death rituals have transformed, um, but is there, is there a sense in which, so we talk about this new religious landscape and this, these alternative spiritualities, and uh, there's a lot of conversion going on, of course. Um, and uh, someone in my family, for example, I grew up in an atheistic home and someone in my family converted to Catholicism uh, mm-hmm. because he longed for a, a like a set of rituals that was old, right. Right. And sort of embedded in a tradition. And so is there some sort of distinction, you know, in, in experience? And I personally, I remember I've like tried inventing rituals for me and then been like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like, I just, Mm -hmm. I couldn't, I couldn't get it to stick. And is there a sense which older traditions or older rituals are, are stickier or have more of an anchoring uh, quality about them? Probably because they're just been worked at, worked over for so many by so many people for so long. So they've achieved a form that works. They've sifted out what doesn't work, and they've they've stuck with the things that really really work. So there's a solidity to them. And in the revival of paganism that I've just been talking about, um, uh, of course, they'd say, "Well, Roman Catholic rituals are really very modern. They're only two thousand years old. We want to go back to something much older than that." So mm-hmm. they're going back even beyond that. So you're absolutely right that there is this quest for things that have stood the test of time and that have got that authorization and aren't just something that I made up, if you like. They've got they transcend you as an individual. Mm, and right, they have a, like a heavy. Uh, identity also that you can sort of share in right so you're not just if you make up a ritual you're just you're just connecting with the people who ritualize with you if you take part in a three thousand year old ritual or four thousand or six thousand year old if you go to stonehenge or some ancient prehistoric site then you are joining with generations and generations of people and their gods so it's a bigger it's a much bigger thing um, and I also, I wanted to ask you about, uh, symbols, but I imagine that the answer is almost identical as it is to religion is you do some reaching back, you do some reinventing. That's sort of a theme that would also be happening here. Yes, very much so. I think people, um, people love the rich symbolism that's available and the internet makes that more easily available and they find, or they'd say they find me. They'd find the gods, the goddesses that are meaningful to them, who come to them in a in a whole set of very vivid forms. I mean, take Hinduism, which is my favourite religion of the big religions. It's it's very much like this. You know, it has the gods have such vivid forms, and they mix animal, human, and god. Each image has all elements of all those things. So they're post-human inherently. They're popular. They're on everyone's taxi cab, uh, house, every, wall, you know, they're everywhere. It's as vibrant as it ever was. And 
maybe in some ways um, in the monotheist, some of the parts of the world anyway, the old monotheist cultures are looking for something a bit more like that, that's more integral to their lives and communities and where they have a bit more agency as well. Hmm. That's fascinating. Um, I am really surprised, but we're actually coming up on time, which is crazy because that went by so fast. Um, I'm wondering if you have any things that you would like left that you didn't get to say that you would have liked to say or comments on the modern spiritual landscape that you would like to leave people with. It's okay if you well, I think we've covered a lot. You're very good at this, but um, <laughs> Thank you. Um, I mean, just to sum up, I think we obviously we're talking about pluralization. I'm not talking about here's a single evolutionary trajectory and we're all going in one direction or another. There are still people who are devoutly Catholic, Protestant, all the other religions alongside pagans, atheists, agnostics, um, and it's a situation in which we all have much more, many, for good or ill, we just have so many more options ourselves. And so that's, that's in itself, if you like, rich, but it's also very destabilizing. Mm. And we need to find the gods, the identities, and the communities that we trust, going back to your word of trust, that we can really trust and that can make a, a foundation for our lives. And that's a, that's a hard quest for, for people today, but one that people can't escape from anymore. That was so lovely. That was just so lovely. Thank you. That was that was a lovely way to end this um, end this interview. So um, I will I will let you go. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. This That's a pleasure. Is, just tell me about your work before you go. Sure. Yeah, I could do that. Um, so I work. Oh, well, I haven't worked on my thesis in a in a while. Um, <laughs> I, I, I have a couple of projects. My thesis was on. Uh, ways in which people have um, what we might colloquially call religious. Um, I call them salvific relationships with science. Um, and so oh, I, yes. Yeah. So I, I look at some thinkers, you know, and I sort of pull out mm. uh, ways in which science is, mm. again, I use the language of salvation, how science mm. saves them, um, mm. sort of performs, a, you might say, performs an effective function of remediating the. Um, I call them the embodied limitations of what it means to be human. Um, mm. the phrase I get from Thomas Tweed. So, and I, I take, I, I try to embody existentialism in, in evolutionary history and, in cultural history. And mm. yeah. And so I, I developed this language of salvation, uh, mm. around things that I, I spend a lot of time deconstructing the category of religion. And I use this language of salvation precisely because I want to speak speak to and put phenomenological depth into these into realms that aren't quote unquote religious, right? These alternative spiritualities. I sort of want, I want to blur that distinction. Um, right. Especially when we're talking in terms of experience, because I don't, right. I don't right. want, right. I don't want there just to be religious experience. I want people to be able to, mm -hmm. everybody mm -hmm. to be able to say that, you know, we have this, this experience. So, um, so that was my dissertation. I'm also currently, I'm working on a, um, on a book, on ambiguity and uncertainty in the modern world, um, which is oh, you are wow, I am. Great yeah, I am, yeah, uh, and I it's been really enlightening. And this podcast is obviously very interdisciplinary, and so I've been able to um, really uh, 
learn from all these different angles, how people are sort of touching on, on similar themes and, and branching off of them. And, uh, really... how do you tackle, it's such a great theme, but how do you, how do you come at ambiguity and uncertainty? Do you look at different spheres of society or different causes or different? Yeah, it's, it's tricky. Cause it's a massive, it's a massive it's topic. And if I really wanted to, it could be like a thousand page book and I would definitely write a thousand page book. That would be something I would do, but, um, people wouldn't read it. So, um, the argument, the argument that I want to make is that I am making is that, uh, is a little bit more historical, um, and, and very embedded in, you know, a European and, and American tradition and pointing out, threads throughout our history that have sort of created this uniquely, um, ambiguous moment, you know, um, and, and draw, drawing contrast, of course, to, uh, what we might see in oral cultures or hunter gatherer groups. And so I look at things like, uh, the invention of writing, um, of obviously developments in philosophy and science and technologies. Mm. And it's, mm. Uh, it's massive, but I, I, think, uh, I think it's really important because I, I think I, we see a lot of instability, you know, in, in what, what, explain what you mean by the ambiguity that we are living in. Um, I think I mean, I mean it in a number of different ways. It's, uh, I'm, sp- I'm gesturing towards subjectivity, right? I mentioned the phrase, choose your own adventure story, right? I think, um, I think this plurality that we have yes. can be very empowering, but yes. we need to, like the the conclusion of my book, right? I will mm. be saying, mm. look, we are in a deeply unstable time mm. where mm. we don't have narratives handed to us and mm. we have to construct mm. our own and find our own identity and all this sort of stuff. Mm. But we need to turn that into an, like, this is an opportunity, right? And it Mm. it could be something really bad for us, but it can also be something that is empowering and liberating and helps us, you know, think more open-mindedly or more clearly or what have you. So, um, I want to hopefully start this discussion and then spend time providing tools to people, um, to sort of more peacefully manage the, you know, the situations that they find themselves in. Nice. So how can we turn it into a good thing rather than a bad thing? (laughs) Um, It's very tricky. I think it's, I think it's very hard. Um, I think obviously, you know, especially in being in the humanities as I am, I get to do a lot of hand waving and talking about awareness and ideas and being like, Oh, we should think about things this way um, in terms of practical uh, solutions. But I think some things we can do are um, cultivate, like it take an attitude towards uncertainty that is more, um, a, an opportunity to find new or better solutions, right? Like, uh, we tend to shrink away from uncertainty or cling to safe havens, right? Uh, which is something that has been, I think, pretty soundly mm. demonstrated, at least in today's time. Um, yep. but as a uh, social psychologist, Eric Kuglansky has argued, if we cultivate, a uh, orientation towards open, like if we really make open-mindedness cool, <laughs> mm. um, mm. then it could be something that isn't stressful to people, uncertainty, but, mm. uh, exciting because it is a cultural, uh, value to stay open-minded in front of uncertain choices, right? It's, I think it's a fact of our world that our 
our knowledge is mm. very, is more limited than we ever really thought or our ability to know mm. things. And we should embrace mm. that. Right. And like w- use it as an opportunity to work together. Um, right. As to how we do that again, it would all be about um, education. I think cultivating using psychological tools to create um, resilience, you know, a culture of resilience um, and also helping people with self-esteem and purpose and, and feeling relevant in their community, I think can go a long way towards helping people mm. hold mm. space for um, uncertainty and uh, to risk taking, you know, um, right. Right. So these are just some ideas that I'm like playing with that I have encountered um, through this very interdisciplinary wandering that I've been doing. Um, but uh, it's that's great because not, feels- not, not being talked about this, you know, the instability of our times. Have you found anything good on that picks out this theme of the, how unstable people feel at the moment and insecure? <laughs> I mean, it, it depends on how you define good. <laughs> um, I think Thoughtful, illuminating. Yeah. Um, I recently read, um, I'm sure you've heard of him, Frank Ferretti. He's in the UK as mm-hmm. a sociologist. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some of his work on fear is, is really interesting. He taught, he does talk about, um, mm. uncertainty a lot in, in his books and how, Uh, and how we need to, and that's sort of how I picked up on the language of resilience was through encountering his work, um, because he sees sort of actually our, the way we've medicalized our understanding of ourselves, Mm. um, as, as, as a bit of a, you know, uh, again, as you said, we lose some things and we gain some things, right? And so we gained some skills to help treat some problems, but we also then saw ourselves as problems that needed to be fixed. Um, which, yes. which I just and we imagine there is a fix, which there isn't. Exactly, exactly. And so, um, and so, I think I think his work on on fear has been really enlightening for me. Um, there's also a theoretical physicist named Marcelo Gleiser who um, talks a lot about the open-endedness of science and cultivating, as science educators, um, cultivate, cultivating a spirit of enjoying the, um, the mystery and the limitless, limitlessness of um, science. And I really, I appreciate that as well. That's a totally different angle, um, but another interesting piece that I'm going to try to, you know, pull in. Oh, yeah, that's good. I always remember that um, there's a great book that Barbara Ehrenreich, different point, but Barbara Ehrenreich wrote about medical advice given to women by doctors. And it changes completely every 10 years. Yep. Totally. <laughs> of Not course it does. Uh, actually, science isn't progressing. It just gives you a whole set of different wacky ideas every 10 years. So you can have to take this with a pinch of salt, Linda. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The yeah. medicalization thing is making us sicker. That, that as well, you know, it's, um, again, yeah, losing, losing and gaining things, but I think. Lose your body and ability Mm. to do stuff. I am astonished at the medicalization in the United States since I've been living here. It's gone way beyond what anything that we've seen. People's constant contact with their physicians and constant talking about Mm. their stuff. Right. It's amazingly prevalent, maybe in California more than anywhere else, but. Yeah, and you know, again, most conversations involve something to do with something medical. 
you know, just I've seen a doctor kind of once in my life. I never think about anything. <laughs> and I understand like a different world. Yeah, I understand. Like, I mean, I've, I've wrestled with some pretty serious health conditions and, and actually being really like, again, I was very proactive and without doctors, I figured out what was going on and I addressed it. And that's so subjective and so individualized. Um, but I think generally yeah. speaking, yeah. like we do, like we're so hyper-focused on finding problems to, you know, fix because we think that we are problems that need to be fixed, which is interesting. Yeah. I love your idea of salvific nature of science. I think in this medicalization, it's a kind of grasping after something salvific that will solve all the problems and it's all going to be okay. And yep. we can rely on this thing. Yeah. Yeah. It, it provides order. It provides clean, neat answers. answers clean, yeah. neat answers interventions that don't work but never mind yeah yeah <laughs> yeah it disambiguates the world right and I think that that's that's a great word yeah I got that from my supervisor I didn't make it up but um yeah it, it does that function and I think that's really powerful for people today it is so maybe that's where there is still this scientism alive in the it definitely is of yeah. the United States only I think it's uniquely American that mm. yeah yeah, that's very mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot of scientism in the States, I think. Yeah, but I hadn't realized how much is in people's lives, it's focused in the, in medical science, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, well, it's very polarized, you know, like. Yes, if you're affluent, you it, it is anyway. You hate science or you love it, you know, and I, I think, mm. well, that's for a lot of reasons, but um, mm. yeah. Yeah. Mm. So that's my work. Good. Well, thank you, Stephanie. It's been a great <laughs> privilege to talk to you. Really. Oh, you're very kind. Hmm. Yeah. Thank you. I am. Um, yeah. I as well. This was actually, it was great. I'm so glad that I found your work. It's, it's fantastic. I'll fold a little bit into my thesis and some footnotes. Um, oh, I love you. Yeah. So um, of course, uh, I'm sure this is unlikely, but if there's ever anything I can do for you, um, in the Academy or in terms of publicity or whatever, um, please do, uh, please do let me know. That'd be fantastic. Thank you so much. Yeah. How do I find your podcasts? Um, I can send you a link. Um, yeah, this, that'd be great. yes, this will come out, uh, probably end of May is, is my guess. I like to record ahead of time. So, um, yep. but I will definitely also let you know, uh, when, when that happens. That was grand. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Thank you so much. Have a, have a lovely day. Thanks for talking. <laughs> okay. Take care.